0: Ah, 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and in 1 Peter as a whole, it was written to Christians, Jewish Christians mostly, but yes, even to those Gentile Christians who were experiencing various forms of persecution. There was starting to be an uprise of a lot of persecution upon the believers at that time. This letter was written after Paul's letters, is what many people believe. But as we take a look at this and we understand the why that Peter here, as we will see, is the author of this, of this scripture, is speaking to these Jewish believers, to believers as a whole, to encourage them and giving them and reminding them of the living hope they have in Jesus Christ as their Savior, to encourage them and strengthen them through times of tribulation, persecution, and difficulties in their lives. Because what we find historically, just right after this writing of this letter, we see tremendous persecution coming down upon the church from Nero, the Roman leader. Much more to that story. But we see here the forms of persecution. Men and women who stand for Jesus made them pilgrims or in your Bible maybe would say strangers in the land that they dwell in now. They used to be feeling at home. They used to be part of the community. They seemed to be went along with everybody else in the community. They were just blended right in until they gave their life to Jesus Christ and now sets them apart. Initially, historically, we know that they just those outside of Judaism just saw this as just another one of those sects, one of the part of the Judaism, and that was messed with at all. Only within the Jewish faith did they not like the fact that they were co mingled or looked upon as being part of them. It wasn't until about this time. When they realized they were not Jude, uh, part of the Judaism, not part of the Jewish faith, not part of that. That's when they were then became the scapegoat for all the political and all the other reasons that we know historically and we see. But that's why this letter right, that Peter writes here, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving him the words to communicate to these believers and to us today. And Peter will exhort these Christians to stay steadfast with endurance, and blameless behavior as they will face these persecutions for their faith. Not only will you please don't run, don't take off, don't go hide, but to stay steadfast in your living hope in Christ. Don't put your life under a basket so no one can see you, so that no one will mess with you, persecute you for your faith. That's Peter says, no, stand fast. Yes, the enemy's coming after you, but stand fast. But not only that, how you conduct yourself when you're being persecuted at your workplace, when you're being persecuted by your own family, when you're being persecuted by the community that's coming, how is your behavior, your conduct? is it bring honor and glory? Does it please your Savior? Peter will provide practical instructions and he keeps it real for you and I, and a good source of encouragement to all believers who live in conflict with the culture around them. We see in Christian behavior, we should have this living hope. Why? We verse, when we get to verse 3, we pick his faith and hope are in God. This living hope is the major theme. Of Peter's epistle. So we start off by seeing here in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion and Pontos and Galatea, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. So these are five Roman providences that sits in modern day Turkey today. And that is who he's writing this letter to in this initial. Why? Because this letter was going to be dispersed out among Christians in this area, this province, this particular area, not to any one particular church, but anyone in, up in that area. And how did they do that? They gave it a courier. They gave it to someone who would then go from church to church and they would read this letter to those who believed. House to house through these five regions to encourage them through the persecution they were facing. Now it's interesting, the author is very clear here in verse 1, identifies the author here of 1 Peter as Peter. But notice it's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Two side notes for those taking notes. It appears in 1 Peter, and when you get to chapter 5, verse 12, Peter apparently employed Silas as his secretary to write down these words. I believe he also used Silas as being the courier who would take it up through these five providences to deliver from church to church eventually. We see that during this period of time as Silas is from, a, is a Jew, uh, from Jerusalem Christian, and was a Roman citizen. We see that in Acts chapter 16, verses 36 through 57. And because of this Greek-Roman background, he was a, had a great command of the Greek language, was, which was important. Why? Because Peter did not. That wasn't his primary language. Aramaic was his primary language. The other side note is that you can parallel this letter with the book of Acts. It parallels between these two Peter's sermons according to the Acts, and here I'll give you a couple of examples for you to just go back and ponder on. That is 1 Peter 1:20 and look at Acts 2:23 and see how they match. The other one is in 1 Peter 4, verse 5, with Acts chapter 10, verse 42. That's why we read the whole counsel of God and when you're reading through the Bible, uh, through a, in one year reading through the scriptures, you will see these things starting to come together as you see in read in Acts and also in First Peter. Now, when did this date take place? Well, Peter wrote this epistle, many believe, apparently just before or shortly after the beginning of Nero's persecution on the church in A.D. 64. You can go and capture a little bit of that hint in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The audience of this letter is addressed to the Christians scattered throughout these five Roman provinces from the, the peninsula of Asian Minor that you would hear it referred to. But also understanding that this, that northern modern day Turkey. The churches were made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But in the language here, you're going to see that understanding. And as you know, the scripture that Peter was pretty much used by God to reach the Jewish faith. Where Paul was called to to rise up and to reach the Gentile faith or Gentiles in that area. And as we see this, this letter does speak to both. And what was the purpose? It was a letter or an epistle that was understood as like a field guide written for ambassadors for the soldiers of God going out into hostile foreign land. They needed to have some kind of a field guide of how to deal with what the things they were going to deal with. How many times do you living and working and playing and even spending time on holidays with families and it feels like there's the enemy that surrounds you? But they're supposed to be your co-workers. They're supposed to be your family. They're supposed to be your, your the neighbors. But they seem to be your enemy and not in, in unity and in how you think. Why? Because you're a believer and they're non-believers. Light and darkness... You're not going to dwell together. So the question is, how do you handle this? And that is why Peter's writing this letter for you and I to to learn how to handle persecution for our faith. Now, Peter knew that persecution would arise, so he carefully prescribed certain conduct designed to bring honor to God, the one we represent. But the purpose then of 1 Peter was to encourage Christians to face persecution, not to avoid the persecution by hiding. So that true grace of Jesus Christ would become evidence to those who would watch your life. We see that noted in chapter 5 verse 12. Believe it or not, as much as you don't like it, and many times I don't like it, is that God uses the persecution, the trials and tribulations in your life to bring light to this fallen world, to watch you, how you handle yourself in the conflict that makes them awe and wonder. He's not losing it. No, he's not. Why does he seem to be still at peace and in joy and seem to be still strong and and in his right mind? He's not gone squirrely. How could that be? Anyone else would be squirrely right now. And they're asking. They're scratching their heads. And they'll dance around you on that. Like, dude, like, where are you from? Like, what are you on? Are you, like, on some medication to keep you calm? Because you shouldn't be calm right now. You, you seem to be really at peace. What are you taking? Everyone tries to rationalize and justify somehow because in their own mind, they know how they would be. They would lose it. It would be a really bad day. But not as Christians. As we mature and grow in in our faith, and our foundation is, and not in the situations, not in the fiery darts that are thrown at you, not at the bombs that are, you kind of lifted into you. No, 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 that doesn't shake you. Because you have such confidence in the one who keeps you. Who has you in the palm of his right hand. And we know that nothing can touch your life unless it's been father-filtered. And if he allows that to touch your life, it's because he's going to help you grow and mature through that, and you're going to become a bright light to all the fallen world around you to lead them to Christ. Did you know that? Are you up for the challenge? Do you desire that in your life? Do you desire to be used by God? I hope so. Because as the more you draw closer to Christ, the more you're equipped to do what? To take the bombs. Take the fiery darts, to be the light, the example to this fallen world. Because people are, you know, are going squirrely on, on us around the place. Have you watched the news recently? Do you see the wrong being right and right being wrong? Do you think this is this is gonna? Somehow in the next political moment or in the next uh, weather change or <laughs> the next change of jobs or change of relationships or change in this and change it. Do you think that's going to change anything? Scripture is very clear how it's going to be in the end days. It'll be like the days of Noah. Selfishness will reign like no other. And so... Peter is preparing as he should, as a spiritual leader, prepare the people for what is to come. And that is why we're in the scripture today. Why we're in this book today, God designed so that we will learn to be prepared for what is to come. Or what you're dealing with already. This epistle gives a theology of practical exhortation and comfort for you and I as believers in our daily needs. And we will also see this letter, this epistle, is rich in references to, and quoted by and in the Old Testament. Not only do we know what, who the author is and the date, the audience, the purpose, but the theme is a living hope. Our new birth, us being born again, gives, this, uh, gives us this living hope in the midst of this persecution. Now the name Peter is an interesting one. If you really ponder on it, think about this. Peter's na- given name was Simon. But Jesus, on meeting him, changed his name and called him Peter. Now, how do you like that one? Now, who are you? And then he comes to understanding who he is, and then he realized you can change my name whatever you want to, Lord Jesus. You can change my name. And he did. He called his name Cephas. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 42. The Greek translation um, of the uh, Aramaic word Cephas is Petros. Both in the Aramaic and in the Greek language means a stone or a rock. Jesus changed names to depict the character of who that man will become. Or who that woman would become. So Jesus described of Simon's future strength of character would be one of solidness. A rock. A stone. That he, he can be relied upon. It's interesting. He is the only man in the New Testament called Peter. Did you know that? Nowhere else do you see the name Peter except for Peter himself. 159 times in the New Testament. What's his occupation? Was he a religious leader in the Jewish faith at the time? No, he wasn't a Paul. Was he someone who was just the mayor or somehow ruled the the town? He became very famous in the town. No. He was actually a fisherman. Him and his family were fishermen in the Sea of Galilee area. And Peter would be called and accused of being unschooled. That's a nice way of saying, you don't seem very intelligent. You don't seem like you've been reading very much in your life these days. What does he do? He sits around and just reads fishermen's magazines. Unschooled type. But it's interesting is, yes, that's what he was as a fisherman, and he was probably very good at it. You wouldn't think that because we see how God used, as you know as the scripture, how he couldn't even catch a fish because Jesus needed to use the practical things of his life, what was happening in his life at that moment, to get his attention and to show who Jesus is and the power of Jesus in his life. Did he not? Is that how that happened to you when you got saved? You were just living your practical life, and God showed up and revealed Himself in what you do and who you are, and show how who He is to you. You know, it's interesting. We, you take a look at this man, and as being unschooled, fisherman had this uh, Greek was not his native tongue, so it's, it's not. Uh, ordinary there, you know, for him to be able to converse the way he's doing, let alone write a letter to to those across all spectrums of multicultural society that he uh, ministered to. But those ungodly and Jewish religious leader types saw Peter as an unschooled simply because he did not go to a Sophisticated, rabbinical, traditional school, and because he did not go to that school, they discounted him as he couldn't know anything about God. Oh, how foolish. Not because he was illiterate, because he didn't fit the model of traditional rabbinical con- tradition. Tradition. But Luke also recorded in Acts 4.13 that these same leaders as they watched Peter's life was astonished by Peter's confidence and the power of his spirit-controlled personality in delivering the truths of God. That would shake you. How many times have you gotten around someone who's gone to school And you just seem to be so much more wiser about the things of God than them. There's a lot of educated derelicts out there. Peter was one of those who was astounding by the power of God working through his life and the power of God's word touching the hearts and the ears of the people. But what was his ministry? Peter's public ministry spanned more than 30 years and took him from Jerusalem to Rome. And he lived and preached in this multilingual world and he was a simple fisherman on the sea of Galilee. See when you're empowered by God, God can take you to great places and to reach great many of people. Many times we limit ourselves because we put ourselves in a box, or people put us in a box, and not trust in God and what he will lift you up and do. It is believed that after three decades, Peter could have mastered the languages of the majority of the languages as he ministered to in all of these areas. When did the death of Peter take place? Well, Peter was in Rome during that last decade of his life, and his martyrdom is dated about AD 67. Nowhere in the Bible tells us how Peter died. Many will draw the conclusion based on historians said that he died with the crucifixion, but upside down, they claimed. Because he didn't believe he could go and be crucified like his savior. He didn't want to be like that. And they turned him upside down. According to history, not biblical. I mean, it's not in the Bible. So we'll, we'll rest on how, but he was killed for his faith. Now Peter, he was not merely an apostle, but there is a sense in which he was the leader of the apostolic uh, group there. And Peter was an important and influential man in the early church that we see, considering that he was an author when this letter was delivered out into these five providences, Many of them took note exactly what he was writing because he was the leader of the church at the time. They wanted to hear everything that Peter had to share with them. Significantly, Peter introduced himself here as an apostle. Note here for those note takers that the supreme importance of apostles is suggested in the phrase of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Anywhere in the New Testament, you never see, or see a reference to, I should say, where you're the teacher of Jesus Christ, or you're the prophet of Jesus Christ, or the evangelist of Jesus Christ. Only in the scripture do you see an apostles of Jesus Christ. That shows the importance of that very defined office that's to those 12 men. We also see Peter did nothing to explain or justify his apostleship and did not add a phrase like Paul does in his letters where Paul would at times would say, by the will of God. We see that multiple times in his letters. Peter didn't need to do that because it was very defined. They knew exactly who, wrote, who read these letters, who a Peter was. Now Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone except the name of Jesus. Did you know that? Peter was the most named. No one speaks in the Gospels as often as P- Peter did. So when you read through the gospel, when you read through, you'll see Peter's a lot of talking from Peter. But Jesus spoke more to Peter than to any other individual. So that means there is quite the communications between those two, which would result in these few things that I think is very interesting to me. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple in the Scripture. Jesus rebuked Peter more than anybody else in the scripture. Peter was the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. Oh, but Jesus addressed Peter as Satan along with the other disciples too. They had no problem speaking the truth to one another in many ways. Peter just had a problem of over-speaking what is not. Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and accurately to any than any other disciple as you read through the, the New Testament. He was always the example of boldly proclaiming and witnessing who Jesus is. But also we see Peter denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any other disciple. Now I state that because... As God uses this man, Peter, to write this letter, there is a history that brought him to this piece where he's writing this letter of tremendous value for the people of the church because the people needed to trust and believe and understood that Peter was not just writing, he wasn't just speaking, he actually lived this. He had the highs and the lows of the ministry of his life and God used it all for his glory. For God's glory. Some writings spring from and manufacture out of books. It's like the way a college student writes a a term paper. It's usually based upon a bunch of books that he's read or she's read and writes this term paper. But not for Peter. This, this book that he's writing, this letter that he's writing, is not like some brought out of books and he's kind of summarizing from it. But the letter grew out of the life lived in the glory of God. It was his life that was pouring, being poured out in the life lessons and the living hope that he had in Jesus The number of events in Peter's life are woven in the fabric of this epistle as we go through this. That is why it is my favorite book. And it will more likely be yours as well. Now since Peter is so prominent in the gospel records, what took place in Peter's life that shaped his life that gave him this living hope? Well, let me go through a few of them. Peter put his nets out at the direction of Jesus to bring in a massive catch of fish we see in Luke 5. And saw a massive miracle happen right in front of him. An experienced fisherman blew his mind because that that could have never happened. And then he realized with Jesus it's amazing what can happen. Peter stepped out of a boat during a raging storm and walked on the water. That's kind of a normal thing to do, isn't it? Don't you think that would affect your life if God called you out on walking on water? Don't you think that would at least affect you in some way in your life? And putting your hope in Jesus? Peter was one who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Because there was a question asked. You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We see in John chapter 6. Peter saw Jesus reconfigured in glory together with Moses and Elijah and watch him ascend right into heaven. That would be a life-changing experience, don't you think? Peter was the one who asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive a brother? The sin against us. Oh, how much? What, seven times? That's a lot, I know. But is it seven times? Oh, no, Peter. <laughs> no. Keep showing up, Peter, regardless of how you feel. You'll, you'll, you're going to learn. You're going to grow up. You're going to mature. You're, that's not the answer. How about Peter was the one who insisted that Jesus would not wash his feet and then he realized after Jesus spoke, Oh, Jesus, please wash my whole body. (laughs) I misspoke again. We saw that in John chapter 13. How about Peter heard Jesus predict that he would deny him three times and Peter's reply after three years of walking with Jesus. After all these other experiences, what does he respond? Even if I had to die with you, I would not deny you. And the rest of the disciples agreed. He still didn't get it. Peter was the one who cut the right ear off of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, when the soldiers came to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter denied Jesus three times, cursing and swearing that he did not even know the man and refused to even name the name of Jesus. And that was from a little girl questioning him. How about Peter was the one who ran with John, the disciple, to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection and after hearing the report of the women that the body of Jesus was no longer in the tomb. Now, it's getting even more intense. How about, Peter was the one who received a personal visit from the resurrected Jesus on the day of the resurrection. That would affect someone's life, don't you think? And finally, Peter received a public restoration of Jesus. Restoration of Jesus in front of the other disciples after the resurrection of Jesus. Because God said, I'm going to use that denial for my glory because I'm going to restore you. And you're going to become a vessel so strong and so committed to me and so changed and so solid with me and you're going to living hope will be just about me and only about me that you are going to change the world I take this time my brothers and sisters because many times we avoid the conflicts the persecutions We avoid the situations. We do not want to be stretched. We don't want to be challenged because we don't like to be uncomfortable and we like our lives the way it is. And I want to encourage you because you're going to go through certain persecutions. And if you will allow God just to use your life and use it so brightly and so salty to this world. Yes, you're going to have challenges. Yes, you're going to be persecuted. You might even have near-death experiences. But I'm telling you, I see what I see in the scripture. You will become a Peter-like and you will change the world where you live. That workplace will be never like it never was before. Your house and your home and your children and your children's children will not be the same. Your neighbors, your community, even the church you dwell in, the church body that you fellowship within will be changed because you are, and solidly will pronounce the living hope in Jesus Christ. Yes, you will feel like a pilgrim, as Peter says. You'll be, feel like you're a stranger in a foreign land, like you stand out and I can't believe I'm here and, and I feel uncomfortable and lonely and all the emotions that come with this. But remember what a pilgrim is. A pilgrim is always has a mindset at going home. You know this is not your place. You're not looking to, 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 to live this life on this earth. rest, You know that your Savior's coming back for you. You're just a pilgrim. This is a vacation gone bad and you're going home. Because your living hope is in your Savior and your Savior is in heaven. Our hearts desire to go to heaven, not to dwell in this chaos. But in the meantime, we're going to represent our homeland as ambassadors, as pilgrims. We're going to not say, we're going to proclaim. When we take communion, what are we to do? We take communion and we keep taking communion, recognizing the death and the resurrection and the living Jesus Christ we serve. And we continue to proclaim that truth until he comes and takes us home. But he says to the pilgrims who are dispersed. Peter clearly wrote to the Christians here obviously we see it throughout the 1st Peter but these dispersed these ones who were put, dispersed out even the fallen Jerusalem when the Babylonians conquered Judah all of that God was dispersing them out so that they become lights and salt all over the world to be able to share of who Jesus Christ is and then this was written to this no one congregation but all Christians Jewish and Gentiles, all of them were one, one body. And then he gets into very specific terms in verse 2 to encourage these believers, these born-again believers. Look what he says. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. This is just the intro to this letter. Just the intro. Peter's first description described his intended readers as, remember, I want to encourage you, when the persecution comes, remember, you're born again. You're elect. You've been set apart by God. Have encouragement in that. Be solid in that. Be steadfast in that. You have been set apart by God. How? How? By the foreknowledge of God the Father. It describes the nature of of their election. God's choosing is not some random uninformed, but according to his foreknowledge. Which is an aspect of his omniscience. He's all-knowing. This foreknowledge includes prior knowledge of our response to the gospel, but it's not solely dependent on it. We see the sanctification of the spirit for obedience. Which is the essential result of our being born again. Our result of election is that sanctification and obedience. While some would like to think that election has only to do with going to heaven or hell. Peter here reminds us that it is also touches earth. A claim to be among the elect, a child of God. You're a child of God. It is doubtful if there was no evidence of sanctification and there was no evidence of obedience in your life that you are a child of God. You're a child of God. By the foreknowledge of the God the Father and you're being sanctified by the Spirit. You are being You're being changed by the Spirit. You're now bringing, how do we know that? By your obedience to the word of God. So he's saying, I'm going to encourage you with this. Remember who you are and who yours is. And the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And why that's important is because even as a child of God born again, we fall short of the perfect sanctification and the perfect obedience as we walk in this flesh and in this world. And there is a cleansing from sin provided for you and I and for them through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What's the result of the Spirit working in your life as you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit? As you've given your life to Jesus Christ by faith and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit? You will see a sanctification, a process of change that will take place and it will bring you to the obedience of the word of God. Does that describe you today as a believer? Do you know that when you were born again, that God changed you? And that he's continuing to do that change and to bring you to a point where you just desire to be obedient to your Heavenly Father? That's God's work in our lives, but obedience is man's responsibility to be submissive to God's word. We see that in Romans chapter one verse five and a few other places in Romans. So we see here God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ, all three, the Trinity, the the three persons of the Godhead, is all named by Peter effortlessly. Way here, combined with the works of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our salvation, displays the New Testament approach to the Trinity. It's not detailed out as a specific doctrine, but it's woven into the fabric of of the New Testament. In the Bible, to it, the the word foreknown means to set one's love on a person or persons in a personal way. Like God has set has his electing love on the nation of Israel. Like Israel, he also his love set apart or was uh, placed upon. For you and I as the world. We see that in John chapter 3 3, 3, 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He poured out his love. He He made the decision to pour out his love on this world by sending his son to die for you. He made a way for you to be reconciled with your relationship with the Father. Now it's interesting as you continue to think this through. God's plan of salvation more than the Father's electing love. It also includes the work of the Spirit in convicting the sinner and bringing him to faith in Christ. The best commentary on this. Go back and read today 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 today. But also, the Son of God had to die on the cross for our sins, or there could be no salvation. There would be no gift offered to man to accept. So Jesus had to die on the cross to make that way. And we have been chosen, loved by the Father purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Spirit. And it takes all three if there is to be a true experience of salvation, or regeneration, or a born-again experience in your life. And as far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when He Chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, you and I were saved on one specific day and moment in your life, and you were changed and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the day of your salvation? And when we heard the gospel and chose to receive Christ and our life as our Savior, we were born again. Then it all came together, all three of those elements, but it took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. If we separate these ministries, we will either deny divine sovereignty or human responsibility, and that would lead to heresy. And he finishes in this intro with grace to you and peace be multiplied. See, Peter brought a greeting that was very common to the Christians. He had the Greek culture element, Grace and he had the Jewish culture element, peace or shalom. Now, in verses three through five, we'll finish up with this. It says, Blessed be the Father, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This new birth that Peter starts off by establishing, remember, you are a child of God. You were born again. You have a living hope. It is all based on Jesus that you follow. You've surrendered your life. You now live for him. While you go through persecution, just keep your eyes on Jesus. The author and the finisher of your life. But we see here blessed be. He, when Peter considered the salvation of God, his immediate response was to simply praise God. It motivated him to do God's work in his life, to change and be continue to go through the sanctification process because it just reminded him of his foundation of the fact that it's according to God's abundant mercy. That he can, you and I can even worship Him. It's only because of His abundant mercy that we can do anything for Him. That we would even have a living hope. All His goodness to us begins with mercy. It is from the mercy of our God that all of our hopes begin. When you talk to someone who has no hope, who has considered and dabbled around with with, uh, suicidal thoughts and things, is because their minds do not set upon the living hope. If you, God is going to use you in a life of someone who is on the edge and contemplating to try to get out of this this misery and concern and situation, whatever it may be that's driving them, Please share the living hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way this, they're going to come out of that darkness is by gr- allowing Jesus to grab a hold of their hand and them to embrace the Savior and living hope that you have. To tell them about anything else in the scripture, you're, you're wasting your time. Bring them back to who Jesus is. According to the scripture and what he's done in your life, so that they too will have a living hope and take another day. Because it says here, according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. Begotten us again? What does that mean? <laughs> when did it the first time happen? You were born, and then you were born again. We see this, he has begotten us again. It's the wording of begotten us again is different from born again in John 3, 3, but the meaning is the same. Peter's idea is that when a person is saved, they are being made a new creation. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And when you understand that you're a new creation, you're not the old man being refurbished. You're a new creation. It should give you this living hope that we are born again, this living hope because we have eternal life in a Savior who has conquered death himself. Our Savior was resurrected. Our Savior ascended into heaven. Our Savior sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for you. He talks to the Heavenly Father about you. And the love for you. Do you ponder on that? You should be meditating on that. Especially when you feel down and out after being persecuted. You must immediately start worshiping God and pondering on the love that God has for you. The living hope is based on the living resurrected Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, when we get there. And it is a living hope because it is grounded in the living Word of God. My hope is not based on my feelings. Can you want me to say that again? My hope is not based on my feelings. Because if it was based on my feelings, like the early first six months when I first got saved, you're on this emotional roller coaster. You would think, I'm saved. No, I'm not saved. Oh, I'm saved. No, I'm not saved. No, I'm saved. You'd be on a roller coaster. it will make you squirrely. But once you have the foundation set that you're saved, look what Peter says here to reassure them of the fact that their living hope is based on the living word of God and has made it possible for the Son of God who arose from the dead to now to raise you up into a new, as a new creation. What's the assurance here? Look at this. It says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This word living means that the believer's hope is sure, it's certain, it's real, it's, it's It is solid. It's it's the opposite of the deceptive or empty or false hope the world gives to people. Your hope is sure. The hope lives because it is set upon an inheritance that's incorruptible. It's pure. It's undefiled. It can never fade away because it is reserved in heaven. This world doesn't control it. The politics don't control it. God himself controls all things in heaven. Do you believe that? Because this is an absolute significant contrast to any inheritance that you may be promised on this earth. <laughs> I tell the girls, don't expect any inheritance from me. I'm you know, I, I, I might. We had a dog. I said, I'm going to give it to the dog. That way I know the dog's going to be taken care of if your mom and dad's gone. There was no insurance for them in the inheritance. But our inheritance in God is assured. A guarantee. It won't fade away. It's not going to spoil. It's not going to decay. It's not going to dwindle. But let me tell you, my brothers and sisters, you cannot experience inheritance unless you're born again. Don't rely upon a false hope out there that you can just live however you want to and expect an inheritance. If you're not born again, if you're not a child of God, you don't get an inheritance. Unregenerated man does not have the capacity to enjoy the inheritance either. It would be like rewarding a blind man by showing him the most beautiful sunset and taking him to an art museum and say, did not that? Isn't that just beautiful? Isn't that incredible? Did you, can you see that? The blind man will look, you know, I don't see a thing. When you talk about the inheritance of God to you, An unregenerated man, an unbelieving man, woman, will not understand when you talk about your inheritance in heaven. You're going to look at you like you're crazy. But in speaking with and witnessing to those who don't know Jesus, we shouldn't just tell them about the agonies of hell that they will experience in their current state. We must also talk about the glories of heaven they will miss if they don't choose Jesus. Verse 5, this is probably the most encouraging note here in the beginning by, Paul, uh, by Peter. And that is, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Pastor, I am weak and I'm tired. I don't know how I'm going to be able to keep going. It's okay. God's got this. Your salvation, your inheritance, your life is based upon the power of God through faith for salvation. It's based on God's power, not yours. The promise of our inheritance is certain because we are kept by the power of God. As a child of God, you have the full assurance of being kept by the power of God. This enables us to be endured through faith until Jesus is coming through the persecutions that we're going to face in our, uh, our belief in Jesus. God's power is the high tower. In The word here is a garrison. A garrison, an army, is our security that guides us and guards us from the enemy, we are kept by the power of God, but it is through faith and faith alone that that happens. Meaning, meaning our faith we place in Jesus Christ. It's the person who is kept is a person abiding in continually in his relationship by faith with God. Abide in Christ jump on Jesus' back and have a hold on him and just love him and never want to desire to walk away from him. Such security, such a surety, such power to preserve us in our life as a Christian. Believers possess salvation now, but it will absolutely come to full significance at the return of Christ, Peter says here. He says, it will be revealed in its fullness right there in the last time when Jesus comes back for you. It will be fully, fully fulfilled. That last ultimate completion, the salvation of our souls, as Peter will reference in verse 9, will come when Jesus Christ is revealed. The assurance of heaven is a great help for us today. If you're suffering today, it means glory tomorrow. And when you know that suffering means glory tomorrow, then suffering becomes a blessing to us as a believer. You could actually be blessed through the suffering because you know it brings glory to God i want you to ponder also today on 2 corinthians chapter 4 verses 7 through 18 today and rejoice when you read through it it's all about the living hope you have